Moth Sanctuary Productions presents The Outsider, a Penny Dreadful novella, written by Andrew Bate and read by Chloe Gorman. Part One, Tempest Tossed. shouldn't be here. I was staring out the window at one of the most perfect views I had ever seen. The room was warm, the sun bright, but a chill ran through me and refused to let me go. A single thought raced through my mind. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. The sea has secrets and she guards them well. If only I knew that then. I know it now. That year had been difficult for me. Every day I was alone in a city that never stopped moving, and the demands of my work kept growing until they became interminable. I hadn't seen my family in 18 months, I'd not stepped foot outside the city for longer than that, and I had no friends to speak of. All I had was the work, and that was enough for a time. I was good at my job, perhaps too good, but then I had to be. My employer, Mr Finneran, had progressive views on allowing women in the workplace, and was keen to showcase their value as conscientious workers, worth every bit as much as men at a time when that way of thinking was met with derision or even anger. It was just the opportunity I had come to the city in search of, and I was eager to prove Mr Finneran right and show everyone my capabilities, regardless of what it meant for everything else in my life. Looking back, my breakdown should have been expected. All the signs were present. It seems to be more and more commonplace that we as a society prefer to fix a broken thing once we've wrung all we can from it, and maintain it adequately while it's working. The breakdown and subsequent nervous disposition arrived in dramatic fashion. I just couldn't take it anymore. The isolation, the relentless voices with their relentless demands, watching everyone around me rest or relax and knowing that if I stopped for even a second, there would be someone to order me back to movement again. Or worse, tell me that I wasn't working hard enough and that I didn't belong there. As far as I was concerned, I had been charged with setting a precedent for other women in the workplace so we could show that we didn't have to be outsiders to the workforce and that some of us may even thrive within it. So when I started seeing the spiders under my skin, heard the noises in my room that weren't there, couldn't catch my breath for the tightness in my chest, the weight of all that expectation came crashing down on top of me and I was trapped, helpless beneath it. Having no friends, it was Mr Finneran who noticed something was wrong after my second day's absence from the office. And when his agent came to call, they found me on the floor. A shaking, babbling heap hollowed of strength, of wit and of spirit. If it were not for the embarrassment it may have caused the company, I believe it would have been enough to see me institutionalised. Instead, it was kept quiet. For their benefit as much as mine. But nevertheless, I was grateful. 
To his credit, Mr Finneran kept me on throughout the worst of it and arranged for doctors to visit me at home, which helped me through the worst of things. It was he that suggested I take a sabbatical and spend some time far away from the city, away from anyone or anything that could remind me of the stresses of my day-to-day life. He suggested I go somewhere full of fresh air and greenery, where my lungs, eyes and soul could be refreshed, and he would help me to get there. I was extremely grateful for this, but the voice in my head that constantly told me how my failure had ruined the chances on behalf of all women whispered that he wasn't doing this for altruistic reasons. Mr Finneran didn't want people to know that his controversial belief of female workers had proven false, and the cost of my care, whatever it may be, was worth it when weighed against his pride. Either way, I accepted his invitation, and after some deliberation, decided to spend five days in the coastal town of Wales Arch in Yorkshire. I had never been so far north before, and the scenery the books described sounded like such a contrast to the city, a wide open dream of countryside with plenty of places to explore. Galvanised by a new excitement, I took to researching my chosen destination eagerly, and discovered that the local history was so colourfully storied that there was a near endless list of places I could visit, including the ruins of an old abbey said to be the town's crowning jewel. I informed Mr Finneran of where and when I wanted to go, and he took care of all the arrangements. A few days later, an envelope arrived with my train tickets and accommodation information inside, and it was suddenly very real. I would soon be spending five days in a sleepy seaside resort with nothing to do but what I wished. The prospect seemed foreign to me. As much as my frayed nerves would allow, I was giddy from the moment I stepped onto the train, and that feeling continued throughout the long hours north, with nothing but the clacking of the rail for company, until I arrived in Wales Arch, where I was collected by a waiting cab. I was captivated by the sights that were slowly revealed to me as we made our way through the town. Ahead of me was the ocean, mile after limitless mile of it, imbued with a brightness that I never would have found anywhere close to the capital. In the valley to my right, there were buildings and houses stacked atop one another, filling the chasm between the east and west cliff, all giving way to the harbour, which stood as a strong barrier against the wild sea. Across the valley, at the top of the east cliff, sat the famed ruined abbey, of which I had read so much about. I was so struck by its grandeur, that I barely registered the comparatively diminutive but quaint church in front of it. I drank in all the details of this splendid landscape, and I breathed the first easy breath I had taken in months. In the mid-afternoon light, the Sirens View Hotel looked delightfully welcoming. There was even a little sign for a tea room in the window, which stated that it was open to non-guests. As I stepped inside, I was greeted by a happy black dog and an equally affable day manager, who stepped out from behind her desk and shook my hand. "'Miss Dutton,' she said with a pleasant grin. "'I'm glad you arrived safely. "'On behalf of myself, my husband and little Tatum here, "'we're very glad to have you. "'Your employer has already notified me of your circumstances, "'and everything has been carefully prepared for your stay.' "'I thanked her. "'Then without hesitating, she took my arm "'and led me up the stairs to my room, "'insisting on carrying one of my cases, "'as if afraid overexertion would impede my recovery.' As we walked, she informed me that I had come at a good time, owing to the fact that the tourism season had just finished for the year, and I had the entire hotel more or less to myself, so I shouldn't be disturbed during my stay. We stopped at a door on the first floor landing, 
which had the words Harker Room written on it in black letters, trimmed with red. She then handed me my key and went back downstairs to resume her post, the dog pattering behind her. The pleasant scent of old wood greeted me as I stepped inside my quarters. The room was small but more than sufficient for my needs. There was a long high bed with a large black headboard that dominated most of the space and looked as though it would have been designed for someone three times my size. There were two chairs at the foot of it and a great floor-to-ceiling window which offered what must have been the best view from any hotel room in the town. It looked clear across to the east cliff and encompassed everything that had enchanted me on the ride over. The ocean, the cliffs, the churchyard and the abbey. It was as if everything wonderful about the town had been distilled into this one viewpoint. It was here that the unexpected and unwelcome thought crept into my mind. I shouldn't be here. My smile faded. The periphery of my vision darkened. I couldn't think of why I had been so overcome with such a feeling so suddenly, but nevertheless it had come. All the excitement that I had carried with me from London was gone, and in its place there was a grave sense of dread and the desire to run. I wanted to be home, in my dim flat where it was harsh but it was safe. The view that I initially found so wonderful was now acutely unsettling. The abbey at the top of the hill flooded me with a sense of unease, as if it were looking at me as much as I was at it. During the preparation for my visit, I read about a nun from the abbey who broke her vows when she fell for a local man. As punishment for her transgression, the other sisters supposedly bricked her up in the abbey's walls, where she wailed and cried and scratched at the stones until she expired. At the time I thought it simply a tale of local intrigue, but now, being in constant sight of a place where something so hideous occurred, I was revolted to my core. But just as I averted my eyes from the horrid ruin, I came to another macabre realisation. The local church that sat in the shadow of the abbey had grounds that spread out as far as the cliff edge. What I had originally taken for a stone fence that ran along the sides to prevent parishioners from falling, I now saw was a sea of headstones, so plentiful as to look as though they were stacked upon one another in a dark mimicry of the houses in the town. So many bodies, so much death, and all who were buried there joined the latest layer of sedimentary rock that was on show from the wrecked face of the cliff. I imagined another landslide falling away, revealing broken coffins and their skeletal remains, reaching out like a pleading soul trapped under an avalanche, hovering in mid-air. With all these things on display, and my mind racing through imagined terrors, I came to regard the East Cliff as some kind of terror mortuorum, and I lost any desire to go there. In fact, I lost the will to explore anywhere in the town at all. I reached to swing the shutters closed, but the hinges on the right side were broken and wouldn't swing too, so I was forced to keep the Sentinel Abbey in the churchyard in my view constantly. I had to get out of the room. I was overwhelmed by a need to escape that horrible feeling of being watched. Flustered, I rushed out of the door and back downstairs where, once again, the dog came bounding up to me, oblivious to my distress. "'Are you all right, Miss Dutton?' the manager asked from her station. I nodded, but I couldn't bring myself to speak. My expression must have given me away. Leave her alone, Tatum, she instructed the dog. Have a seat in the tea room, love, and I'll fix you something warm. She moved into another room with the dog following at her heel. Walking into the tea room, 
I took my place at a cloth table, surrounded by a broad assortment of curios, books and ornaments. The woman returned a few minutes later with a steaming cup in her hand, which she placed in front of me. If you mean to do any exploring today, you might want to drink that down quick, she said, taking the seat opposite mine. There's going to be a storm tonight, and believe me, you're not going to want to be anywhere but inside, safe and warm, when it arrives. I turned in my chair and looked out the window. Nothing but clear blue skies for miles around. How do you know there'll be a storm? I asked, pointing through the glass. She smiled. There's one on this night every year. Gives the town a proper wallop. Takes a few days to get rid of it fully. The same day, every year, I said curious at how such a thing could be. Every year. When I asked how such a regular storm was possible, she simply shrugged. She told me that if I were to ask any of the fishermen, they'd each give a different story to explain it. But in the end, there was only one that would be right. Maybe we're in a microclimate. Maybe it's a result of all those factories pumping smoke in the air. All I know is we have to deal with it when it comes. You'll see soon. A good handful of the locals will start emptying out of the town over the next few days to try and avoid it. We'll be running on a skeleton crew, as it were. Even my husband will be heading out for a bit. She smiled and clasped my hand. But don't worry, love. I'm not going anywhere. There'll be someone here to look after you. Although you're lucky. What with this and the tourist season being well and truly over for the year, you're lucky to find someone available to take care of you. The way I see it, you'll be the first outsider to see the Wales Arch Tempest in decades. My cheeks reddened. This time my host didn't seem to notice. I told her that either way I wouldn't be going out exploring today. There was a sound at the front door that made Tatum hurry to his feet and out of the room. The manager excused herself and got up to attend to it. I suddenly realised, to my embarrassment, that I didn't know her name, and before she could step out, I called after her and asked. "'My name's Eliza Jane,' she said cheerily. I gave a weak but sincere smile in return. That's very pretty, I told her, to which she chuckled once again. To some, maybe. Here I'm named after a ship that wrecked just outside the bay. All hands drowned. I'm a walking memorial, love. Then she left to attend to her visitor, still giggling as she walked. I stayed and finished my tea, enjoying the pleasant oddness of the room. All around me there were mementos of the sea, Shells and starfish lay strewn on tables, shelves, and even mounted in frames. On one shelf, there were blocks of cork that, according to a small card next to them, had been taken from the life jacket of a lifeguard who had been the sole survivor of a rescue mission that went awry. The other eight men died, too proud to use the newly introduced cork jackets. But the ninth had been the only one to wear his, and it was this that spared him from his brother's fate. Since then, the surviving man had become a local champion for sea safety. These pieces of cork were said to bring good luck and the favour of the sea to whoever owned them. Next to the cork was a splinter of wood taken from a wrecked hull, and I wondered if maybe it was from the same mission. Maybe the ship in question was the Eliza Jane that my host had been named after. They live alongside their history here, I thought. Everywhere they look, there's a reminder of their collective grief. If I'd thought this only a few minutes earlier when I first came downstairs, I would have found it morbid and upsetting. But after the tea and the conversation, I found it touching. They never forget what they've lost, so they can appreciate what they have. Elsewhere, there were things I couldn't distinguish displayed in cloches. I'd never seen anything like what was inside. Whatever they were, 
They may have been alive once, but now they were so dried out they looked like papier-mâché creations with wide mouths, fins and squat little bodies. Nearby, a page from the local newspaper had been framed on the wall. It featured an image of a large collection of men and women on the beach at night, celebrating in the pouring rain. Underneath a banner headline that read, Another Year of Plenty. In the foreground were two people, a bespectacled man and a woman who both looked as though they were in the middle of cheering. I studied the image to see if I could see Eliza Jane, but the date on the cover said that it was from 20 years previous, so it was likely I wouldn't have recognised her even if she was there. It did make me wonder why it was on the wall if it didn't feature her or her husband. Maybe the man and woman were her parents, or maybe it was just a community memory of a nice, if slightly unusual, occasion. Next to the article was a box frame, which contained five needle-like teeth lined up vertically next to each other. They were approximately three inches long and were aged and worn. I grimaced at the thought of what sort of devilish fish could have grown such things. These were just some of the strange collection that took up every scrap of spare space in the room. There were other artefacts strewn about, some more conventional than others, and I found myself smiling at the pride with which they were displayed. It was as though everything had been laid out by a child that had been collecting treasures on the world's most demented shore. By the time I was done studying all these curios and oddities, the sky was darkening with the beginnings of the storm Eliza Jane had mentioned. I was suddenly very tired, and my nerves had calmed enough that I felt able to return to my room. Once inside, I could simply sleep off the fatigue of travelling and wait out the worst of the weather. I went out into the foyer to say goodnight to Eliza Jane, who was deep in conversation with a pale, dark-haired, mustachioed man, who looked as though he'd rather be anywhere else. He only reluctantly met my eyes when I bid them both goodnight, and then looked away again quickly, shuffling slightly from foot to foot. Then I ascended the stairs back to my room, but as I climbed, I noticed all had gone silent, and I had the distinct impression that they were both listening as I made my way up. The dread window still leered into the Harker room, but now that I had taken some time away and collected myself, the sight of it didn't frighten me as much as it had before, and the darkening of the sky made me feel less on display to it. I changed out of my travelling clothes and sat on the bed to read. It wasn't long before the book fell from my hand without having a single word read, as I drifted unexpectedly to sleep. I couldn't say whether it was due to the flashes of light or the noise, but I woke in the night to the storm in full flow. The impact of the gale against the hotel walls struck with the force of a great wave, and the rain clattered on the window with frightening violence. Everything around me was unsettled by the lunatic churning of the wind. My cup rattled on the dresser, and the one working shutter shook loudly in its place, trying desperately to break free. A gust broke against the window with such a strength that I feared the glass would shatter. I examined the panes, attempting to hold the impetuous shutter in place as I did so. Between the street lamp's glow and the flashes of lightning, the night was intermittently as bright as the day. I stared out at the tempest, examining any potential damage it may have been causing across the town. Out in the bay, the waves rolled uncontrollably in all directions and crashed against the harbour walls. I wondered how the boats moored within would possibly survive such savage harassment. Looking across to the east cliff, the storm now hovered directly above the abbey 
as if drawn there by some ancient tradition or eldritch purpose. Powerful forks of sheet lightning spread out around it, illuminating the dead windows in such a way that they felt like eyes watching me the whole time I was observing the weather's behaviour. I drew my eyes away from it to the churchyard, where the many headstones stood in resolute defiance of the wind. They'd seen it for hundreds of years before, and would likely see it for hundreds more. Through the flashes, I made out something moving among them. It was what could have been mistaken for the figure of a man, but impossibly tall, maybe around eight or nine feet, walking against the wind, heading towards the edge of the cliff. If the gasp that escaped me made a sound, then it couldn't be heard above the calamitous rain lashing the glass. I strained through the darkness so as not to lose sight of it. Each time the lightning lit up the night, it revealed the figure's grotesquely proportioned form moving a little further through the field. It wasn't clear where it could have come from, but it had now come to a stop at the edge of the cliff. It stared over the side, looking down towards the sea as if searching for something, and maintained its position before there was a longer break between the lightning. For a few seconds, the world went black and terrorised me with the awful sounds of the wind howling outside, as loud and relentless as a train. When the lightning returned, the figure was gone. Reeling, I wondered if maybe the weather was playing tricks on my vision, or that maybe I was having another episode brought on by my earlier anxiety. I backed away from my window and hid under my sheets like a child. My agitation was tangible as a fever, and it overwhelmed me. I passed into a faint. The Outsider Part 1 Tempest Tossed was written by Andrew Bate and read by Chloe Gorman, with music also by Andrew Bate. The Outsider is a five-part Penny Dreadful novella produced by Moth Sanctuary Productions as part of Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary. Subscribe and download all episodes of the series now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on other Moth Sanctuary shows, visit mothsanctuaryproductions.com.